0: We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly dindilly to... dong, come on. Messi. It's a sharing And so charred. funny.
1: I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Aguero.
0: Welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Curnine. Joining us today is Matt Ford, Academy Coach at Charlotte FC, set-piece analyst who works with Division I college teams over here. He shared some brilliant analysis on his LinkedIn page recently, and I thought, why not get him on and discuss? So the World Cup just finished, brilliant tournament, loved it. But what are the tactical trends And more importantly, how do they impact our coaching, specifically at youth level? So that's the topic today. If you enjoy this conversation, we are having an end-of-year MSC special webinar, Wednesday the 28th of December, 2 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. UK time, Argentina versus France, one of the greatest World Cup finals of all time. We all know about the genius of Mbappe and Messi, but... We're going to take a step back. Tactically, where was it won? Where was it lost? Matt and I will be doing some analysis around the game. And then also, I'll be sharing some processes around analysis. From a personal level, coding, video breakdown, organization. If you enjoy that side of the game and you want to join in the discussion or get some tips around analysis, please join us next Wednesday, December 28th. Reserve your space now on the link below or go to modernsoccercoach.com slash shop. Really good way to finish up the year. Excited to be taking a look at an unbelievable game. Please join us, modernsoccercoach.com slash shop. Reserve your space now. Here is Matt. Enjoy. Matt thanks so much for joining me here modern soccer coach tactical breakdown from the World Cup we just finished it two days ago first question put you on the spot what did you make of the tournament as a whole
1: <laughs> yeah good morning Gary it's, it was uh c- coming into the tournament I think we we're all kind of interested to see how things would unfold you know, new location in particular that we weren't weren't sure how it was going to go down and to be fair I mean I thought it was a great tournament I thought the final was a fitting end to quite a an up and down tournament. There were, it had everything you needed. Right goals. It had upsets. It had all the little things that you hope for from a tournament. Uh, selfishly, i liked England to go further, but uh, you know we can only we can only hope and dream. So, <laughs> um, but no, I think especially going into the the latter rounds coming in is a neutral, um, I loved it. Especially some of the upsets that we had in there and last minute goals and um, the little dramas we had come through. But I don't know about yourself, but I thought it was a, a cracking tournament. You mentioned England there, like from
0: a tactical level, and I know they weren't in form coming in, and I'm not going to pretend to have watched England in detail or or even at all actually. In, in, since the Euros, what surprised you about them, and what impressed you about them?
1: Yeah, it's. A, I think the the thing that maybe frustrated many, I think England fans in particular, was just kind of the. The length of build-up was was it was good to have the ball, obviously. I think having the ball was great, but I think we had the ball in very non-threatening areas. For a lot of time, we had possession. Um, I think there were times where we felt like we could have taken more risks, I think. Um squad selection I thought improved through the course of the tournament. It was nice to see Foden getting more minutes and uh and, and when Rashford you know had his had his long stretcher minutes as well, he was really dangerous. I think that was part of the big frustration. There were times when we never really felt we went for it. Um, and I think there's probably much more tactical <laughs> tactical terms to put it. But uh, especially against France, I feel that we kind of left it a little bit too little too late. Now, with that being said, I think against France in the early moments of the game, I thought we were able to pick apart their, their you know, their front line pretty well with how we built. Um, but again, it, I just really felt like we, we lacked that that risk-taking, especially, you know, as we got closer to the goal, It seemed to be, this is the only tournament ever that England have gone out, in my opinion. And the whole, it's
0: usually the media, the public (laughs) are all slating everyone. But this was the
1: first one that everyone seemed generally pretty positive about where they were. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, I I felt the same way. And I always go on, you know, being obviously in the US and like trying to get the the vibe back home. I feel like everyone felt that we played really, really well in the France game. That was probably our, our best game. We all think we deserve more, um, and I did too, so <laughs> uh, selfishly. And yeah, and I feel like there's just been, I just even for the last four or five years, just a vibe around the England team from the outside looking in has been much more positive. You know, and you hear on um, interviews with the, the the Golden Generation with Scalzi and Lampard have just felt so much pressure, and uh, I'm sure they still do now. But I feel like the the impression towards the England team now is so much more positive, and. You know, and now Gareth Southgate's been flavor of the month, and he's been let's fire him, and you know it's been kind of been up and down. But I really feel like he's he's grown a love for the team again, which I think we've we've missed over the last uh, well, it's been there for the last four or four, five years or so. But prior to then, I feel like sometimes there's a lot of negativity towards the first team and decisions made. So. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been an interesting one, and I think everyone looks a lot more positively going forward too, especially with the, the players coming up, like every country is. But, <laughs> you know, we, we're looking at it just from our own lens too. So,
0: What team, coming out of this World Cup, would you, if you had to pick one team to go to a training camp or had to pick one team and you'd get a, a ticket to go watch them play their next match or watch three more
1: games, wh- which team? That's a really good one. I think th- there's different reasons to go to different places, if that makes sense. But I think the one for me, and again, it might just be, uh, again, flavour of the month, but I'd love to just go and see from a Morocco standpoint, in the just their their just their sheer intensity and desire and all these different words that you can use that are, you know psychological piece I'd love to see what that looks like in training if it's the same in training or if it's a switch when they come into game day I mean they're professionals I'm sure it, i'm sure it is in in training but I would love to see those pieces less so the training and the content of the training but just from a mentality standpoint how they approach training the uh, you know, obviously, I may not be able to understand the language, but from a coaching standpoint, is it detail or is it is it more motivational? Or it, it, just love to see what that blend looks like because I think there are many coaches I'd love to see what they do and how they work from a technical standpoint. But just how Morocco approached the uh, the, the games in terms of intensity, uh, a fire that a lot of teams just didn't really have as much of. I'd love to see if that kind of emulates in training as well, if that makes sense. Mm. So, yeah, probably go Morocco this time around.
0: But we'll look at some of these tactical trends that you've identified. They're fantastic. We talked a little bit off air about, you know, your, your journey. You are working in an academy, but you're also then doing this along. Like, talk about uh, how often a day are, are your
1: processes around breaking games down with your coaching as well. Two hats. Yeah, two hats. So the, the first one, and he's and, and, um, really only been over the last six months or so, he's been working with Charlotte FC, Uh, Within the academy, working as a coach and then doing the analysis piece as well. We're just now going into the off-season piece. So there's a little little bit of downtime, but during the week, it's pretty go, 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 especially when we have games coming up on the weekend. Um, The analysis, what that looks like in the academy for us is that we obviously uh, want to work on ourselves. We want to improve the boys that we have. Um, So a lot of the work is individual from a video standpoint um idps Uh, yes we do a little bit of opposition work as well but again we want to make it about ourselves so it kind of has a lot of different facets i suppose that go into it um, from that standpoint obviously after games it's then reviewing games clipping games to be able to to be able to review with players but also to keep track of kpis and uh trying to find different trends through games as well and in game insights that we can hopefully learn as a as a group to kind of um develop our individuals and teams moving forward. If there's something, say, for example, that we've seen in the past four weeks that we think is great, let's look at it in a little bit more detail. So something that we need to improve, can we um can we try and deep dive into that a little bit and try and figure out uh what it is that we need to to touch on to improve on. So that's the first piece. And then with Arizona State uh, working as a analyst, analyst for the opposition as well as set pieces. So it's kind of a, a dual role there as well. Obviously, the college season is thick and fast and games come every three or four days. So uh, the turnaround is quite quick on that um, in terms of getting reports to the coaches And again, the the main piece of my role is looking at the upcoming opposition to grab the kind of trends in and out of possession. But the primary piece is set pieces as well, which is a big passion of mine. Um, And then trying to deliver that in as quick and uh, consumable way as possible without losing the detail. So week to week depends a lot on games coming up um, and where we are in the season. If we're in the thick of the college season, like we were a month and a half ago here, um, it was pretty hectic, a lot of late nights, uh, trying to get all the different reports and pieces put together. Um, and like I say, kind of a lot of it depends around that that game, uh, where the games sit and how many games we have for the upcoming weekend In trying to clip things, put reports together, get insights. And then if there is spare time, can we worry about now the other pieces that we maybe haven't been able to worry about for the last couple of weeks because of the games? So, yeah, very dependent on the, uh, the upcoming weekends, honestly. Uh, we talked before just about about set piece coaching your passion of set piece coaching
0: Arizona State how would you how do you judge the success of a of a remote analyst in the college season is it goals scored is it chances created or, or what are the processes around that
1: yeah it's a real tough one i think for me it's um comparison i think with with the other teams within the Pac12 which is obviously their division so through the course of the year we'll keep a almost like a league table for set pieces and uh and we you know through the I think for about the first two thirds of the season, we're in the in the top three. I think within that twelve, which was awesome. I think we compared to last season, we ended I think tenth out of the twelve in terms of set pieces. So the goal, at least selfishly, was to to lift that. And can we can we rise up through uh, through the course of this past year? Um, we, uh, we we conceded a couple towards the end of the year as We went into the playoff season, uh, which was obviously. Hurt a little bit, <laughs> but uh, it's part of the game. And uh, but that's really how we've judged it is. Um, chances created, goals scored, first contacts. Again, I know we spoke off uh, off uh, offline here as well about how important first contacts are. And again, from the research that, that I've seen at least is, you know, seeing that you create a chance ninety, you have nineteen times the chance of creating a chance if you uh, if you win first contact, and eleven times more likely to score. If you win first contacts, so I think those little details for me um, become paramount. Um, and then I think from a defending standpoint is, you know, if you're keeping the ball out the back of the net, I think you've done well. <laughs> it's a good start. And then from attacking standpoint, then we're starting to look at a deep divers, the, the timing of the runs, the when we run, the delivery. There's maybe some more facets to look at in there just because you're the one setting the tone, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, it's it's been it's been fun to as the seasons go on or as the season has went on is looking at things in different ways and learning a little bit more about what maybe i need to prioritize a little bit more what i need to emphasize more within the reports that we send um but it all comes back to if we've got an attacking one can we score and if we haven't can we keep it out the net so (laughs) keep it back to the basics at times yeah
0: let's get stuck into the world cup trends now if if anyone's listening to this on the podcast they can jump on and they want to see the visuals visuals are fantastic and that's what. I saw you posting this on on LinkedIn and thought, we've got to get on here and chat about some of these because you've linked it back. A lot of what you link back is like, all right, how's this going to impact coaching as well? It's great to look at things that the World Cup level are doing, but if we can link this back to what we're doing and, and potential trends in the game. So if coaches want to see the visuals, go onto the YouTube channel. Um, we start here with, this is always an interesting one for me and something that jumped out to me. Goal locations. And when you put this together, the first question I wanted to ask you is why, like, there seems to be a change here in round two and round one in, in terms of what's, especially in that central area. Like, I suppose, like, what what do you read from this and, and what do you take from if you're delivering this to coaches as some things we
1: should be looking at? Yeah, I think the the first round one was was really interesting. Just from the standpoint, no goals were scored from outside the box, and I think that was probably the one that jumps out to me straight away. Um, not only that was just the amount of uh, crossed uh, crossbar, and, we'll, and I'm sure we'll come to the assist piece later on, but amount of goals scored from crosses and the amount of headers that were scored. There were things that that for me jumped out. I think for many may have been common, you know, common to see, but for me did jump out a little bit compared to. Uh what I've expected through club football or maybe tournaments in the past here, and then uh yeah, and as you can see there from the the second round uh the first goal of the second round from iran was uh was outside the box, and uh, and I've gone well, there goes my theory about uh <laughs> from outside the box again, it's short sample right I think the first the first round was obviously sixteen games as was the second, and the fun bit is through the course of this tournament it's been accumulating all of these together. Um, and I know the, uh, the, the the full tournament map is is on there till a little later on, but it's been interesting to go from tournament, uh, sorry, from round to round or stage to stage. Um, has anything changed? And I think especially as we go through the stages, a bit more of um, urgency or risk-taking has to come with teams needing wins or needing points. So that may now lead to more shots from outside the box and more chances uh, being scored from outside the box as well. So, um The first round, a little bit more cagey, uh, defending uh, units and and, and lines a little bit tighter. So the chances outside the box may have been a little bit less, whereas uh, now we see the goals being scored from inside. I think, again, turning it back from a coaching standpoint, again, the the one theme across all of this is the amount of one-touch finishes versus two-touch and three-touch. And I'm guilty of this. I'm sure uh, I'd imagine many, many others are as well, that when working on finishing um, a... Again, this is probably a, a knock on myself, but a lot of times it's unopposed, just trying to work on that, that technical piece. Um, but also it's either two or three touches. How much am I really working on that one such finish? And it's something that I think I need to emphasize a little bit more. Um, and some coaches will be uh, in that boat already, which is fantastic. But I know for myself, this was the main focus was, can I take things from this to develop my coaching piece and develop my coaching methodology? Um, I saw you just switched over there to the to the uh the, the the group stage and then the the whole world cup itself um it looks like a lot of dots at this point, and I think this is where the magic is for me going forward is trying to deep dive into this a little bit more, but just the volume of goals being scored within the width of the six yard box was probably the big one as well and again, probably not big surprises, but just reaffirms that those are the pieces that I think um Become really important when it comes to session design, and I think it's key to not neglect other finishes from other areas because we still want to work on those things. But the, um, the the volume that we work on those finishes in areas that we're seeing a trend that does happen, I think, becomes really, really key. Um, so that that thing for me is the big takeaways. Then you can see, obviously, that the, the last thing I'll say, kind of on on these pieces, is, and I know we'll come to the assists portion in a second here amount of headers and volleys being scored and and the area the area they're being scored in as well is I'm a big believer that crossing is a a dying art at times I think we see so often now uh left wing is being right footed or right wing is being left footed so we're seeing less of that traditional um you know Ryan Giggs the David Beckham delivery from wide areas um it's still there obviously depending on the team but just kind of from a trend standpoint so to see a lot more goals being scored with headers and volleys uh, coming in from wide areas was really interesting as well. And uh, big comparison to 2018 where the half spaces were the the big assist zones and you know goals being scored in that six yard box and six yard box and second six yard box. Um, so we see a similar trend in terms of goals location, but the assist location um, is obviously slightly different too. But uh, yeah, a couple of big things for me from a coaching standpoint taken away and uh like i said across the course of the uh tournament adding up these dots and locations has been interesting to see little trends that have emerged too
0: yeah the i love the visual of color code and the one touch two touch and three touch finish because i think when you start to look at and and shot maps for me can be a bit noisy beyond <laughs> you know like central locations are obviously and we've we've done a bit with all gauge on on putting stuff together with giving forwards visuals on, on shot decisions and locations. But what, what I love about this is the red jumps out to me because I'm looking at, all right, well, the red to me is creative. Um, now, not in every case. It might be a 1v1 and it might be closer to goal. But but those ones on the edge of the box about creating your shot, and I think that that's something that when you scale back to a younger level, you look at shooting Drills or shooting finishing exercises—they're usually two touch, touch, shoot, touch, shoot. But rarely, and I know we're going to get uh, defenders in front of these opportunities. But I think the ability to create your own shot now against blocks is that becoming something that that is is maybe increasing value in in against these type of defenses.
1: Yeah, that that was one of my. Again, talking about session design and methodology, that's one of the big things that jumped out. So from my uh, from my research on it, 50% of of goals were scored with at least one defender between the ball and the goal. At least one. Uh, many of those, obviously, two, three, maybe four, obviously, depended on the uh, location of the goal. But um, that was probably a big one for me that jumped out. And now it's starting to make me think we had a session a couple of weeks back here where we were working on finishing. And uh, we we're lucky enough to have one of those uh, air toms, the Tom Tom mannequins, and just put it in the middle, just between the ball and the goal. And We said, okay, now now it's a little bit different. We're not just striking a ball now. Now it's can I use that player as a as a as a wall to whip it around? Is it I strike it across my body now to uh, to find the um, you know the bottom left corner instead of the bottom right? And it just all of a sudden added an element of decision making. And again, it's not nothing new. Trying to add opposition, uh, making the space realistic, all these different things are ways of trying to create that effective decision-making. My goal now is can we make the decision-making realistic to what we're seeing within the game more often Um, and not just creating decisions just to to make decisions. I think there's an element of that where the game is always gonna throw different pictures and different ideas, and we can't just work on the things that are trends. We have to work on as many different aspects as we can to create a, a complete player. Um, but at the same time, is now can we use these trends to to make at least from my standpoint make my training more effective to what we're seeing in the game? And the other piece as well to this, I think uh, it was forty three percent of goals saw some sort of immediate pressure on the ball, and I'm so we're talking within about a yard or so of of the ball striker, and the most common um, angles of pressure were from either directly behind or behind at an angle uh, versus maybe in front or in front at an angle. Uh, so when I look at my session planning now is, is how often can I incorporate those little moments? Where can I have a defender recovering that can maybe put that attacking player pressure from behind or at an angle or from the side versus just the traditional uh, one-on-one with a player in front of you? So those are the big implications I'm taking from it. I think they're great numbers and great insights, but again, taking it back to the coaching piece is can, how can I affect change now within the group that I'm working with? and this is probably the big thing I'm taking from it personally, is adding more interference between the ball and the goal. Can I have more pressure on the ball? And again, it's 43%, so it's not all goals, it's not even half, but it's definitely something I would love our players to be even more prepared for, even more ready for when it comes comes into a game.
0: I, I think it's fascinating because I, the way I look at youth coaching tearing down from the from the late game is, all right, we're... We've got a fascination. Most coaches, as that's what I'm referring to as we, we've got a fascination with overloads. We've got a fascination with with Rondo type activities. And that's usually, you know, using the overload to create something. But in that picture there, you haven't used it to create something, but it's the player's skill set. That's the solution. So it's almost a technical solution to a tactical problem. And a lot of coaches would say that's bad shot selection. but when when you've got the skill set to bend and manipulate the, the final, then that's obviously you're you're increasing your ability to score and
1: problem solve against block type defenses, right? Yeah, I, I think that adaptability for a stri- for an attacking player is incredible, and I think we can work on ball striking, ball striking, ball striking, but w- without any context to it, and and the different variety of shots, and you know how many shots do we see nowadays that go in that aren't the best of connections but they've got the the craft to be able to find a space in the goal or to, to be able to bend it around the player or even now playing through the legs of a defender <laughs> is uh, is an art for me that still uh still still is one for me i haven't quite grasped but uh it, that that's probably is the big one for me is being able to create adaptable attacking players or adaptable players in general that can find ways to create something out of what may look like an unlikely scenario Um, And we always want to try and upgrade our chances of scoring a goal for sure. But if they can see that piece of the goal they're trying to hit, it's okay. It might not be laces through the ball. It might have to be with a little bit of bend outside the foot, Uh, the old futsal toe poke maybe as well. I mean, there's different ways of scoring goals. And I think uh, I want to be very open to the fact there's so many different ways we can score without uh, just working on one technique over and over and over. Can we create those situations that bring out those moments where we have to be a little bit adaptive?
0: hello coaches we take a quick break here if you enjoyed the final as much as i did and you want to take a look back at it we are having a modern soccer coach end of year tactical webinar special december 28th 2 p.m eastern 7 p.m uk time i'll be joined by matt again we're going to break down one of the greatest finals of all time we know about the genius of Mbappe and Messi during this match but let's take a look back where was the game tactically won and lost let's look at some of the organization around teams going in let's also look at some of the set piece setup and i'll also share some processes around analysis the processes that i go through with video analysis showing some software ideas showing some breakdown ideas showing some tips around workflow as well if you enjoy that side of the game and you'd like to join the discussion or just get some tips and ideas around analysis, please join us on the link below, modernsoccercoach.com shop, December 28th, reserve your space. Once you reserve it, you'll get an email copy of the webinar afterwards even if you can't make the live event. So really excited to chat about an unbelievable match and continue this World Cup analysis and have Matt on again. So please join us December 28th, slash shop See you then, thank you. All right, here's your uh, your special topic now, set pieces. Yeah. I mean, all right, I'm going to say like this is just the gear. I don't I don't have numbers to back this up. It felt to me like this World Cup was Less effective with set piece goals is that right or wrong?
1: Bang on, yeah, it's about, it's about half of 2018. 2018, oh, wow. it, was, it was, yeah, it's about 44 percent in 2018. I will say a little asterisk next to that. I think Harry Kane scored uh, half of those with penalties, but um, <laughs> but the uh, but 20, 44 uh, percent in 2018, 2022 saw 24, percent so I mean, a little under half. Um, Of goals scored from from set pieces, and and in this World Cup, high majority was penalties again. So 17 from penalties, uh, 12 from free kicks, and then um, and then 11 uh, from from corners. And I think corners were the big big trend that we saw in 2018. And again, I I, I'm guilty of it, but I'm going to keep referring back to England. There were different. uh, the, The train became really popular in that World Cup of four or five players in a line shooting off in different directions. Um, and there were some really interesting ideas coming out of that World Cup um, this year. A little bit different, As I said. Twenty-four percent of goals scored from set pieces. I think, for in general, we saw a bit of a uh, bit of a shift in terms of different defensive setups. And I think this is where Netherlands really impressed me, or, or kind of shown a different look that we haven't really maybe seen, or at least I haven't seen the world from from set pieces so often. Very frequently, especially from a zonal defending standpoint. Very common to see a couple of players, either one or two or sometimes three on the edge of the six yard box between the width of the the goal. And those are kind of the key areas that typically we'll see teams set up zonally to to defend. Um, For anybody watching the graphic, obviously, it's a little bit of a different scene for Netherlands. uh, They use their goalkeeper essentially to be that central zonal player, which when you're six, seven and up, I suppose you have that ability to, to to do. And I think that's what they've used here is kind of using the individuals they have to their advantage. So two zonal players, uh, one defending not the front post, but kind of the front front post zone between the uh, the edge of the six and the front post in line there. And then a player sitting right around the back post. And the back post player was the one that probably jumped out to me as the biggest surprise. Um, looking through an analysis of, of uh, corner kicks in the MLS, it's an a minute percentage using a back post player or what I would call soft back post player which is just offered of separation from the back post it's an incredibly small percentage of teams that would use a back post player so there's a couple of things that stood out from that zonal piece and again using the players you have to your advantage having a, uh, a six foot seven plus goalkeeper uh, definitely gives you some some different looks um, but again in terms of a zonal structure just from looking at it from an X's and O standpoint, you would you would look at it as a pretty fragile structure, but they were able to make up for it with the personnel that they had. Um, then within there, they've got some some big players that are able to deal with, with you know, win those individual duels. Uh, Nathan Ake, Virgil van Dijk, players that would man-mark at that point. And then depending on the amount of attacking players they were having to deal with, would dictate the rest of their structure. So quite commonly, they would have two players on the edge of the box, or just just inside the eighteen, ready to defend the second phase if the ball came out, as well as a player that would be kind of close to the halfway line, um, ready for any you know counter-attacking moments. And that was probably the big, big one for me. That's been my focus over the last couple of months. Here has been second phase moments. Um, obviously, we look at it from an attacking standpoint, but from a defending standpoint, is how can we win second phase moments? How can we regain the ball when it does go outside the box um, to give ourselves a chance to attack what is quite an unorganised defence in those moments because attacking teams have their big centre-backs go up to, to win headers and their shape is a little distorted. So can we take advantage of those moments? And I think the way Netherlands did that by positioning players that could defend the first phase, but were in positions to um, to, to hurt teams in the second phase as well, so they were my uh, they were my pick for the tournament in terms of uh, a second phase standpoint, and uh, was was really interesting. It, it's just a different scene that maybe we've seen kind of lately. So uh, definitely some things to take away from it.
0: That's fascinating. Uh, that one of the goalkeeper. That's I've, I've never seen that. Um, <laughs> and maybe it's just trends, right? Then we're talking about trends, and maybe the 2018 World Cup, we were all obsessed with the marginal gains of set pieces. One thing that I wanted to ask you, and again, we didn't see a lot of tactical cams at the World Cup, but I remember 2018, I think it was Mexico v Germany, where Mm. they kept two or three up, didn't really seem to see that this year.
1: Any insights on that? No, it's a good point. I think there is a big switch lately. And again, going back to studies I've had in, in club football, is it's really, really rare nowadays to see two for sure. But it's starting to become the way that quite often we don't see one anymore. Um, and I think that was at least when I was growing up, that was just the way you did it. You had players on the post and a player on the halfway line. That was the the go-to. But I think we're starting to see a lot of 10-man defences plus a goalkeeper. Um, with inside the 18. And I think that was something, a big trend that I saw across the board, that that was starting to become more and more rare. And that's where I could really appreciate Netherlands's approach, that they had one on the halfway line, but they also had two ready to go and, and burst out. So they almost had three ready to counter-attack. Um, and that seems to be the magic number that I've, again, from my research as well, that seems to be the magic number in um, from defending corners, winning possession and trying to counter, Three players trying to get forward outside the box quickly seems to be the magic number that, from what I've seen. And that's where I could really appreciate uh, where Netherlands are coming from there. So I think maybe it's a bit of a switch in terms of it's going to a more um, uh, simple outcome of we're just trying to keep the ball out the goal. So they're trying to get more bodies inside the box. And these attacking routines are becoming more and more creative. And um, I think more and more teams are starting to... Uh, bring in set-piece coaches that can bring, obviously, a a different um, element to their game. So maybe it's for a course course of cautiousness. I couldn't say for sure, but at least that's the way the game's going, I feel, in terms of defending corner trends, is there's a lot less of um, an an attacking threat on the other end of it, if that makes some sort of sense. Less players on the halfway line. Definitely, Definitely don't see two that much often anymore either. Um, I think uh, looking back in, again from the MLS piece, it was only a couple of moments where we saw two or three players high up the field, which is always an exciting one, I think always comes back down to your personnel. If you believe in your ability to win that first contact with some maybe bigger players or big aerial threats, maybe you can afford to throw more players higher up the field. Um, so I'd love, I'd love to know what the actual reason is. But those are kind of my thoughts anyway, is that's kind of the way the games go. And it looks like that they're trying to have more 10 man defences inside the box.
0: One stage, I think it was Taylor Twelman doing the U.S. Netherlands game, and he was he was almost complaining about the set piece coach that they've hired that they <laughs> haven't got any goals from it. But a lot of it's not just and and to get your take on this as a set piece coach, you, it's not just trick set pieces you're doing, right? Because he was like, they seem to be doing the same thing over and over again. Mm. But surely there's a level of there's a detail in there that they're looking for. And for you to do something that's completely off the cuff, that's got an element of risk to it, which teams Mm -hmm. that can counter at the, the speed that these teams can get away. Surely as a set piece coach, you have to manage all these dynamics.
1: Yeah. There's, there's multiple outcomes of a set piece, right? And you always want to make sure your, your balance is strong. So you don't want to, you don't want to get caught on the other end. So that's, that's your first piece. But I definitely, you know, the way the game is now, the availability of video and um, not just coaches, but analysts being specific now to set pieces, which I find fascinating um, and and probably is, is the thing that I love to see, is that they're doing their research and they're finding holes or gaps or weaknesses within different teams. So clearly they've gone into that saying, okay, well, on average, you're going to get, you know, five to seven corners a game. So we're not going to have too many opportunities here. And this is just corners, obviously. The same goes for free kicks and other pieces. So we're going to have less opportunity. As a, as a team, they're obviously not able to be together for a very long period. They've come together just in the middle of a club season here. So the time to work on these things. And as you mentioned, you you can't just roll out a trick set piece and uh, it worked just like that. These things do take time um, to, to learn them and really feel comfortable. The timing, the the, the, the types of movements that we're looking for so they've done their research and gone okay this is what we see as a, as a trend um is that we can hurt them or maybe it's something on the other end where from a defensive standpoint this is something we see them do that we want to um adjust for and account for so you get limited opportunities so when we see these corners and they're getting seven eight corners and they're doing the same thing um could it be down to that they really just want to hurt this weakness or could it be um it didn't quite Plan to have as many opportunities, if that makes sense. I can't have a certain setup that we like to have from a corner, but having different options off of that, if that makes sense, to have um, just to make it, I think, simpler for the players and going, okay, this is how we're going to set up, but these are the different ideas or different thoughts we can have off of this, uh, this, this routine or this corner. But I think for me, it comes a lot down to recognizing an opposition's weaknesses and trying to take advantage of that. And especially if the other team don't adjust. Based on uh, the thing that you're trying to hurt, then I think you keep trying and keep trying. If you genuinely believe that's a way you can hurt a team, and I think for me, USA against England might have been a game where I was cringing in moments where um, the, the, on the back post or the back side of the box was a was a weakness I thought that England had, and there were a couple of times where the US almost, almost, I think Pulisic almost got on the end of one where he would have been wide open if he was just a yard further into his run um, that could have really hurt England. So. It kind of works in both ways sometimes too so it's definitely a game within a game sometimes set pieces so it's an it's an interesting matchup assist map this one's interesting yeah talk us through what you see here yeah again i think the 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 round by rounds comparisons i think are interesting because the the overall one does look like a lot of dots (laughs) and i think the key here is trying to piece or try and dissect this as best as possible so as a as kind of a bit of a reference back to the, back to the, the, the 2018 World Cup, um, I haven't got the exact number right here in front of me, but the, actually I do, 21% were scored in wide areas um, from both right and left collectively, where, whereas here it's 39%. So, you know, again, we're looking at kind of almost a double in terms of wide area um, assists. And again, we're coming back to the, the trends. And is that just a one off? It's a kind of a big jump for me. So I feel like there's a bit of a bit of a trend here in terms of change. So my next stage is kind of analysing these these crossing opportunities more and more to recognise. Um, we mentioned it earlier, about is it more now that left sided players are right footed? Cutting in and delivering deeper crosses from from further out, or is it a case of fullbacks are still traditionally right and left footed on right and left as playing as right and left backs getting forward delivering crosses? So that for me is still unknown. and something I would love to do a bit more of a deeper dive into. Um, but you know, as it mentions on here, forty four percent scored from 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 wide areas. Um, the half spaces were obviously the, the 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 big talking point. I think four years ago, and it started to now become the the wide areas. I think a fair distribution, though, between the, the five game channels. But that was probably the big surprise to me or, or big thing that stuck out with the amount of goals scored from wide areas. And that obviously relates back to the amount of headers and volleys that we saw um, early on in the game as well. So that was probably my, my biggest takeaway. Yeah, but I,
0: I felt that as well. Um, not the volume, to be fair. Like, I felt that there was a bit more efficiency from wide areas, but I like that to me, that's I think like twenty one to thirty nine is a massive jump. That's a massive jump. The volume one, I I haven't I've spoken about this before, but I won't even pretend to reference it to the World Cup. I think it's a dying art completely and something that is way and again, a lot of possession exercises, a lot of uh, overload type opportunities that are that are built based on possession mm-hmm. solutions. Mbappe's goal. Oh my god. Well, like that is that is such a high level, but that's such a skill that I don't think we're I don't even prioritise and even acknowledging that at youth <laughs> levels in America. Like what's your thought on that?
1: Yeah, it's it's a funny one. I think headers headers as well, obviously the the over the last few years in regards to the relation to concussions, obviously makes that a really tough skill to work on um but but volleys is another funny one as well and again this might be a knock on myself but i think back to how many of my sessions or attacking sessions or goal scoring sessions have included a volley and it's very little (laughs) so it's something for me that you know are the boys uh, i'm sure the boys are you know those that go out and play um, kind of outside of structured football, at least I know when I was younger, headers and volleys was the 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 game the game that you would play for hours and hours on end um but you know is that still getting worked on is is that kind of unintentional practice still happening or or do we need to start biding that a little bit more now again, the flip side of it right is that we don't want to go out and spend a whole week, so guys this week's topic is going to be uh, volleys off crosses <laughs> it might be a little niche and a little um, i suppose tunnel vision but at least, again, for, for me, from a coaching standpoint, is how can I incorporate that more often? Now is how can I appreciate the fact that this is something that we're seeing more often. And I think that the, the bit that I love the most about the Mbappe goal is that it wasn't it wasn't bang on perfect. He still was off balance. He was having to adjust. He was having to adapt, and still to be able to get that power and accuracy still in that kind of un moment. I think that's where the magic was for me, and that that surely must come back down to repetition and repetition. As well as it being an, an excellent player like he is to be able to adapt in those certain situations, so yeah, and I think again most of the volleys and uh, volleys and headers headers in particular obviously from from wide areas relating it back to the the crossing ability and I think the dying art for me is crossing at times we we see teams getting a such great positions. Now, at the highest level, obviously, they're, they're excellent technicians, and that's what they work on day in and day out. But across the board, I feel like crossing it can is slowly becoming a dying art, especially the different types of deliveries. Um, So it's probably a big one for me that we do a lot of crossing and finishing, I think, across the, the world. I think that's a common thing. But it's how can we set our players up in a position to deliver uh, more cutbacks or more box crosses, lifted crosses, whipped crosses, uh, crosses with um, with underspin are we cutting inside and delivering diagonal deep crosses so just trying to give that variety of, of situation I think is probably the big one uh, like I said the diagonal and deep crosses for me is another one that I, I think may come back down to the fact that we have a lot of wide players that are I say wrong footed but uh, you, you know left-sided players using their right foot right foot, sided players using their left coming inside delivering those those diagonal balls as well was a big trend so Trying to account for the uh, the qualities, I suppose, of the players in those wide areas. So, there's a, a couple of big trends that came out of it for sure.
0: Yeah, the the Mbappe go back to that to produce that power on unbalanced, yeah. and that's that's something that I've been looking at in the last probably last couple of months, just casually, and, and maybe I'll take a deeper dive uh, in my work would be. You know, when you're doing a, a cross and finishing exercise, whether it's a traditional one or if it's box crossing, a lot of it is as a coach, you're depending on momentum. So you're looking mm-hmm. at, you know, like a feeding off, the go, 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 and then everyone getting, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're good at this. But in reality, if you want to get better at it, you're actually gonna you know, off balance. Um, and, and this is where sometimes I think the, the struggle is for a coach is is trying to trying to create an activity that's challenging maybe from an unopposed, really challenging, off-balance shooting, you're not going to generate any momentum. And mm-hmm. I think that's sometimes, t- even for elite players, sometimes that's difficult where they're feeling that this is really, that they're really bad at this or that they're not really <laughs> successful at this. Um, but that's going to be more realistic. Mm-hmm. So sometimes they might go away thinking that wasn't a good training session because we weren't really good today. Mm-hmm. As a coach, you're going away saying, oh, yeah, no, you, I mean, it, if if you give an Mbappe chance to, uh, twenty balls to a sixteen year old of reasonable level, good level, elite level in the US, I think they're they're missing that nineteen times out of twenty, they're missing that opportunity because it's so difficult. Sure. But how do you then tear that into getting better? If that makes sense?
1: Yeah, I, that's a big one for me. I think it comes back down to the, the that that adaptability is it, it's and again i look at that as in exactly what you said i think that's the magic is how can you create those scenarios in training which it is going to it's going to be effective realism it's realism in the way that it's the game and there may be traffic but how much are we going to see this in a game um to try and create those those specific moments and I think that's the biggie for me. And how often, uh, you know, do we see, you know, maybe in training, I was, I was maybe guilty of this as a player, but a ball would come in and it wouldn't be perfect, and I'd just go, "Come on, it's got to be a better delivery." Um, And uh, but you know that's what you're getting in a game, and in a game you're still having a swipe at it, even if it's not perfect. And I think that's where the magic is: is is trying to, if we get the perfect delivery and the perfect finish over and over and over, I don't think that's going to be. totally translatable when you get into the game because it isn't going to be perfect there's going to be bobbles off the ground there's going to be a little defender deflection or might the, the cross might not be connected perfectly and the wind wind may push it one way who knows so mm. you know accounting for those different variables is so so hard to try and put into a training practice but again that's that's the magic I think of of the top top coaches and especially uh the, the coaches that develop individual technique big appreciation for that um, I think that's probably where the, the 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 magic is for me. Brilliant, brilliant. All right, last topic: uh, build up play.
0: Uh, you just you just put this together as well, which is fantastic. Or uh, about building with threes now, um, and the difference between building with a with a three or a four. Uh, talk us through what the trends are here.
1: Yeah, just a couple of quick pieces really, and this is something I'd love to take a deep dive in and. And I'll, I'll give absolute credit. A very good friend of mine uh, brought this up the other day on a call, and uh, he, he got me thinking. And so uh, went to went to the video to try and have a little look of deeper dive on this. And and he was he was pretty correct. <laughs> uh is You know, our theory is you know that a lot of teams in this World Cup did build with a three, even if they didn't play with a three. So if it was quite often, we saw a lot of back fours, and I think we saw a lot less back threes this World Cup than um, maybe in, in years prior. But in build-up, they manipulated their shape to have a back three. So the common ways are obviously having a shallowed off fullback, or to have a six or an eight drop into the back line to create that back three. Uh, but I just kind of just grabbed a couple of different moments, either through England, France, Spain, Brazil, Argentina, just a couple of different ways that they they built that. Um, the first one, obviously on the on the screen here, is is England with Carl Walker, and again this may come back to the twenty eighteen World Cup where. Um, you know, they they did play with a three and Walker being on the right side of that three. Common to see him starting a little deeper, um, joining that kind of the, the two centre-backs of Stones and Maguire and have him join as a back three. I think the magic for me, though, kind of the common trend across all of these was, and again, it's nothing new. It's nothing we haven't seen before, but it's something we saw a lot of is... Creating a back three, but still trying to create at least a matchup or superiority in midfield. So always trying to make sure there are three players in midfield was a common thing that we saw or sometimes four. Um, So I'm not just looking at the build-up structure of the three, but it's now ahead of the ball. What does that look like as well? Um, And again, going back to the England one first here, it's common to see Carl Walker drop a little bit deeper to sit outside um, of of Stones in this example. And then we would see Shaw as the left back uh, would bomb on higher. And at times we see Jude Bellingham coming out into those wide areas. So those rotations to allow Shaw to get higher up the field. So you hopefully use his crossing abilities. And then uh, the complementary piece is, is Walker dropping down on uh, on that right side. Now, the next piece of that as well is the right winger. So the ball's on the left side of the field. The right back is a lot deeper. So now we're trying to create space for our right winger to potentially have a one-on-one um, against the the France left back, so just for me, the little the little additional piece is not just the, the 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 build up piece of the three and then the players are just immediately ahead, but higher up the field. What does that look like too? It's uh,
0: it's fantastic. Like the final lived up to the hype at a level that we. I mean, you've watched football for for probably the same amount of time or, or a little bit less. You're a little bit younger, but like you watched yeah. football your whole life and you're used to finals and big finals, and they rarely, rarely get to the stage that you get excited and as a neutral like a lot of people i know had no interest in argentina or france but were up cheered um i th- i think tactically overall though um yeah it was a pretty pretty interesting tournament with the underdogs of morocco croatia to an extent underdogs in a, a different way but like th- those teams always adaptability and flexibility was maybe the Maybe the takeaway moving forward?
1: Yeah, I think midway through the World Cup too, when we're seeing uh, teams like Morocco, Japan um, having a lot of success as well, there was an interesting statistic uh, I saw on Twitter in regards to possession stats, average possession, and uh, I think it was Japan who had the least amount of possession, but here they are in, in the knockout stage where we've got teams like Belgium, uh, you know, Germany that are getting knocked out here. So I mean, this, you know, it's obviously it's all also dependent on how they play and uh, different strengths they have for sure. But you know, there was no real correlation between having the ball a certain amount of time versus versus having success, which is again is common across all leagues and different different pieces. But it's fun to see uh, teams have different approaches and still have different successes and uh, different takeaways. I think from all of those different teams. So and you mentioned as well about the the enjoyment of the final, and um, I was watching it with a couple of family members who. Um, who don't watch football as much, and uh, they were they were on their feet cheering. It was amazing to see that it affects everybody in in uh, you know so positively, and uh, you know regardless of interest in the game, it still has that impact on people. So it was good fun to watch. Brilliant, brilliant.
0: Matt, thank you so much. This has been absolutely brilliant. I've loved it. Uh, maybe we'll get you on again in the near future, and we'll we'll do a deeper dive on one of the two of these things. But thank you so much for for your continued work. And, and this has been brilliant. Loved it.
1: I appreciate it. a big, big fan of the podcast and uh, listen, listen every week. So uh, yeah. I really appreciate the invite to come on here and um, yeah. And, uh, and good luck with the rest of the, uh, good luck in the future with the rest of the podcast and everything else. Top class. Thank you for listening to the modern soccer coach podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions and resources,